I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. been a professional flight attendant for 11 years. I'm now at a major airline in the United States, and I've uh, seen and heard just about anything you can think of. One thing that a lot of people say about this business is once you get into it, it's in your blood, and there's really no getting out of it. I hesitate to call it a job. It's more of a lifestyle. And so first, you have to be okay with being alone a lot. Even when you're on a plane full of people, you're going to feel like you're alone. It's just, it's just part of the gig. When you're not home, you're living out of a suitcase, and you're either in your crash pad or you're in a hotel somewhere. I have two memories about flight attendants that stick out in my mind more than anything else. The first one was about seven years ago. I had a friend that was a flight attendant in New York City, and he was staying right in between JFK and LaGuardia Airport in Kew Gardens, Queens. I went to visit him at his crash pad. A crash pad, my dad calls it a flop house you cannot afford to stay in a hotel room six, seven nights a week. So a crash pad is a shared living space, like a dorm or that big room from Squid Game. It's where flight attendants can rent out beds between flights. It's an apartment or a house, and it's got a bunch of bunk beds in it. So the housing authority has some standards and rules about how many people can occupy a space, right? So crash pads are very much illegal. And uh, there's more than one kind of crash pad. There's a cold bed and there's a hot bed. Cold bed is, that's your bed. You pay an exorbitant fee every single month in rent to have that bed at your disposal anytime. No one else can use it. A hot bed, on the other hand. Let's say there's 50 beds in that crash pad. You're not assigned a bed that's yours for the month. You arrive that evening and you take whatever bed is available. The saying goes, it still might be warm when you get into that bed for the night. So it's kind of disgusting if you think about it. You won't catch me dead in a hot bed. Well, my friend was renting a hotbed, naturally, and I have seen my fair share of small apartments in weird living situations. But this dude's crash pad with the rotation of shared hotbeds was very not ideal. The flight attendant with the dulcet tones that we've been hearing from, Dylan, he's seen some similar crash pads that were also very not ideal. And I shit you not, this is no exaggeration. We went in there and it was like an episode of orders. It was disgusting. Just floor to ceiling, there's trash everywhere. There's piles of clothing everywhere, broken furniture everywhere, rotten food everywhere. It was disgusting. While doing research for this episode, which is all about flight attendants, their jobs, their lives, their history, I found a different type of crash pad, a legal one, from a service called the Hotel Crash Pad Network. It was started by a captain for a major airline that will not be named, housed at a major hotel chain that will also not be named per their request, the Crashpad Network has locations in 10 domestic cities, and I went to go see one, if only to erase the vermin-infested vision of under-the-table crash pads from my brain. All right, I am across the street from LaGuardia Airport in gorgeous Queens, New York. I don't think I've ever been this close to the airport without actually going to the airport, you know what I mean? Yes, you see the crash pad book? Yeah, so typically the flight attendants will arrive and the pilots will arrive to stop by the front desk and they have a, a binder up here with all the keys that are available and each key is assigned to a specific bed. So we'll take a look. 
So with the chaperone from the hotel, we went up a few floors and looked at a currently empty crash pad. Okay, little cots. These have tents, so like, these are really interesting, these kind of covers. There were five beds in total, one bunk bed, and a few cots with these little cubby-style tents over them. So once they get in, they can read a book, turn light on, there's little, you know, little lamps. Oh, yeah. You can see down there and stuff, so. Oh, there totally are. Hotel side, we try to think outside the box when, you know, COVID hit, saying normally it's not our typical business model, but they're all professionals coming in here. They're not here to party or anything. And Yeah. It's nice you could have a party in here with these people. <laughs> <laughs> what are those? Uh, earplugs. Earplugs? Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, if you're in a room with five other people and one of them is really snoring, even with the tent flap, that would be pretty bad. Yeah. This is great. Good setup. The room was immaculately clean and stocked with fresh laundry. There was a little shower schedule on a whiteboard by the door. Remember to strip your bed, take all your things, erase name from board, sign out at front desk, return key, refer friends. Easy enough. That's how it keeps the network going. <laughs> this is great. Nice view of the airport. What more could you ask for? It's important to note that a lot of technically illegal crash pads are also totally fine. Dylan uses one. Often they're run by flight attendants or even pilots, and do have clean rooms and a sense of community. But still, they can be like a reality show sometimes, without the cameras or cash prizes. Oh, drama and a crash pad. So I, I can think of one particular person, and she made almost every single girl in that crash pad cry, at least once. And she would drink too much, or she'd, oh, she had sex with somebody in the bathroom. It's uh, part of the crash pad life. But anyway, the point I'm getting at, the flight attendants on your next flight that you might be bugging for an extra Coke or a free blanket might be fresh off a crappy night of sleep in an illegal dorm room style setup while someone's screaming at them. Experiencing a crash pad myself, both back then and a much better version now, make me realize there is a lot I don't know about flight attendants. What they do day in and day out, what their life is really like. Okay, so a typical day in the life. I like to be early, and then I'll meet the crew at the gate on the aircraft, and we'll have a little brief. I tend to start the, the brief by saying we're not gonna take any shit from these people. We've been taking shit from them for like two years. We're not gonna take any more abuse. Those days are over. If they're not going to cooperate and follow the rules that they agreed to, they're not gonna fly. Dylan, who is obviously not the stereotypical vision of a chipper flight attendant, has an online alter ego, the Grumpy Stew, short for steward. So you'll get 200 questions immediately upon entering the aircraft, and everybody wants something. They knew they had to take a pill, but they didn't buy the water in the airport. There's only 50 places to buy a freaking pill. Pill water in the airport, but they don't do that. Keep picking crap up. Teach people how to use a door. It's something about that lavatory door. It just puzzles people. Um, you know, you just push where it says push or pull. Turn the knob. It's not that different. But there's no need to stand in the aisle and unpack your bags like you're moving in. Make an effort to hold a door for someone. You know, do a good deed for someone. You know, help an old lady with her bag. Do something nice. But you don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be grumpy like me. Leave the grumpiness to the professional. You'd be surprised. People leave bags behind in the overhead bins like they forgot they're going somewhere. And I'm Petty Betty. I'll wake your ass up until you put it back on. I don't care. Uh, in fact, I enjoy it. I like waking people. Put your mask on. Ooh. And uh, we get up the next day, do it all over again.
So Dylan, who I think actually does enjoy parts of his job, but maybe kind of exaggerates the grumpiness, makes memes about all the annoyances of the gig for his Instagram page, and at one point had a podcast. He readily admits that the past few years have been particularly tense for flight attendants. It was just the weirdest thing, and he just kept going and going, and he's yelling and screaming, and the gate agent heard this, calls the cops. I had to physically chase the guy out of the jetway so the cops could take care of him. We see humanity at its best and at its worst. Flight attendants testifying on Capitol Hill today about the skyrocketing incidents of air rage. Unruly behavior on board passenger planes just this year. Passengers attacking crew members, often drinking or angry about mask mandates. One flight attendant even losing two teeth after being punched. And look, it's been a tough few years for everyone, uh, except billionaires, I guess. But it's been especially stressful for flight attendants, who certainly count as frontline workers. And while, yes, they are getting paid, their job has been essential and more dangerous and annoying than ever. So we wanted to do an episode celebrating them, hearing the gripes from the grumpiest flight attendant we could find, getting our most pressing questions about flying answered by a slightly less grumpy flight attendant, and digging into some of the history of flight attendants in general. Really, it's an effort to understand this particular corner of travel better and to ultimately become better flyers ourselves. All right, so I'll admit one thing that I do is like when we're boarding, sometimes I will go to the bathroom then, like right before the flight takes off. Okay. Will, we have to have a talk. Go to the fucking bathroom before you board the fucking plane. You can do it. I trust you. I got faith in you, Will. You can pee in the terminal and then board the plane. You can do it. We're not asking for a song and dance. You know, don't entertain me. You don't have to give me a tip. You don't have to give me a gift card. You don't have to give me a treat. You don't have to ask me about my life or anything like that. Just say hello. Put your crap away. Sit down. Say please and thank you. Get your crap and leave. That's it. That is it. And on that note, let's segue into a little segment we call Ask a Flight Attendant with Jennifer. My name is Jennifer, and I am a flight attendant with a major U.S. airline. I am based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I fly predominantly East Coast. Everyone assumes that because I'm a flight attendant, my job is super easy. It is a very complicated job in the sense that I have to be alert 100% of the time I'm at work. Yes, it's nice that I can give you a Coke and some cookies, and I love doing that. That's how I get to talk to people all day, but that is not why I'm there. If anything happens, I can get you off this aircraft safely and quickly. Now, let's hear some questions from our audience. Uh, Hey, Jennifer. Sometimes when I get on a plane, I feel like the flight attendants are kind of sizing me up. Am I being paranoid, or are you judging us immediately? Of course, yeah. So when you get on a plane and you notice that a flight attendant isn't just smiling and saying hi, they're kind of sizing you up. What we're doing is we're looking for people that can help us in an emergency. That's so interesting. So you're like, you're like, oh, uh, that guy in 13C, I think he might come in handy later on in the Mm -hmm. flight. Yeah, yeah, 100%. If something happens at the front of the aircraft, I know that the guy in 3A looked really like a big guy. He, I know he goes to the gym. I, he he said hello to me. He smiled at me. He he seemed very nice. I I think this guy would help me. 
Jennifer, I know a lot of planes have stopped serving alcohol during the pandemic. Does it really cause that many problems? And would you ban alcohol permanently if you could? In my opinion, as long as there is a mask mandate, alcohol does not need to be served, period. It causes so many problems and it caused problems before the pandemic because people don't realize that at altitude, which is the cabin is usually pressurized at about 14,000 feet. And people don't realize that you get drunk much faster. And 10, 11 years ago, it, it was nothing for random men to touch me on a daily basis. And nine times out of 10, those random men that touched me were also drinking. There needs to be harsher punishments in place because at the time, the airline that I worked with had a policy where we weren't allowed to say anything. I am not liable for what I say because the next time my butt is touched in the middle of a flight, somebody's going to get hit. <laughs> Someone is going to get hit. Hey, Jennifer. I was once like kind of lightly scolded by a flight attendant for walking around a plane without my shoes on. I'm just wondering, like, is that really actually a big deal? Do people really care? I really don't want to see your bare feet going to the lab. I really don't want to see your bare feet on the back of someone's seat. I don't want to see your bare feet at all. You need to wear shoes to the lab because while the floor of that lab is probably cleaned every night, I know for sure it is not cleaned between each flight. Hey, Jennifer. I'm wondering why it's always so damn cold on airplanes. And also, if you just pretend to change the temperature when people ask, are you guys lying? The aircraft that I fly on every day, I do have access to a temperature control. And then on some aircraft, flight attendants don't have any control over the temperature that is only in the cockpit. So it, it is, that is very airplane specific, not even airline specific. And Jennifer, why is it always so cold on airplanes? the same reason that it's cold in hospitals because when it's hot people get sick a lot faster so I would rather it be cold and people have to wear a few layers than have people throw up because that's the alternative as soon as some people get hot and they're in an enclosed space a lot of people are going to get almost immediate air sickness so to that I say bring layers <laughs> because most flight attendants are going to rather have it be cold knowing that it's going to prevent at least some people from getting air sick. From puking? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's fair. That's fair. Loudly, in your face, and then trying to hand you a, a bag with vomit in it. Sounds like college. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I don't <laughs> want to go back to college, so I'm good. Jennifer, I'm a very nervous flyer, and I hate turbulence. It scares me so much. Um, do you have any advice to help me out on my next flight? If you are prone to air sickness, especially if you're worried about turbulence, if you're scared of turbulence, if you anything like that, I would I would say always try to aim towards sitting in front of the wings, um, as close to the front as you can get, because turbulence is felt less the closer to the front you are. I always try to move those people to the front if I have open seats, because if I can diminish their symptoms, then that's also something that I don't have to deal with. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the Mile High Club and why you should never, ever order coffee on an airplane. It's kind of gross. Stick around. 
Hey Jennifer, so awkward question, but is it technically illegal to join the Mile High Club? And have you ever seen anyone try? I've never experienced it. I have friends that have though, and it's one of those things that, as far as I know, it is not illegal. But what it is, is it makes things very, very awkward for everybody. But inevitably you will get caught. And not only will you get caught, then you're gonna have to like, do the walk of shame down a plane aisle. Hey, Jennifer, I've heard people say you should never drink coffee on an airplane. What's up with that? Is that true? I would 100% never order coffee on an airplane, coffee or hot tea. Anything that involves hot water, I would never, ever, ever order it on an airplane. And there's only one reason why, and that reason is the way that aircrafts are designed, they have to put potable water or water that can be drunk in all at one time. And then it has to go near another area that holds liquid. And that liquid that hold, that is right beside the potable water is the blue juice that goes in the toilet. The nozzle or the area that it goes into is directly beside the area where they put in and pull out the blue juice that has all of the urine and feces from the lab in it. And I honestly, I have never seen that potable water tank be cleaned. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's never cleaned because I don't know, but I will tell you that I have never, nor will I ever order coffee or hot tea on a plane for that reason. You know, Jennifer, we've been talking a lot about puke today. I guess it's part of your job, unfortunately. It's the sad part of my job. <laughs> okay, I'm going to wrap it up by asking the last question. Have you had a lot of run-ins with passengers who really don't want to wear a mask or are causing problems because of that? And what advice would you have for us as passengers to make your life easier right now? Because that's what we want to do. I haven't had as many run-ins with people that are are supremely angry about it. But I will say that... that the tension that comes with the masks and the mask mandates and things like that is boiling over into other things. So it's all of a sudden things that are have always been the case when it comes to, to air travel, like putting your bag under your seat is now a big deal because everybody's already angry about a mask. So I worked the entire pandemic. Coming out of that has been difficult because a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people were furloughed. A lot of people it took pay cuts or whatever. For most flight attendants, it was a giant upheaval of our daily life. Like, I know that it's hard and I know that traveling is stressful. And there's so many things that go into traveling that make it stressful. And just know that 99% of flight attendants are so, so happy to go to work every day. We love our jobs. I just want to be on an airplane every day. We're genuinely happy to see you. and We're happy to see our flights full again. By having everybody come back to travel, it means that we're back on our way to stability again. And everyone likes stability when it comes to their careers. So just know that we're happy to see you. We're glad that you're there. Please don't be mean. <laughs> All right, so we've spent a decent amount of time talking about the life of a flight attendant in the year 2021. And we might have a better understanding of what it's like to be a flight attendant right now. But flight attendants in some form have been present on airlines since the 1920s. Even if this history is sometimes a little muddled. The way it's normally told is this, that there was a woman hired, her name was Ellen Church. 
This was back like in 1930 or 31. And there were eight total women who were hired by what's now United. And these are known as the original eight. Here's the problem with that history. There were men flying as flight attendants already in 1928, where there's a lot of men doing this job. Arguably, in the early years, more men than women. That's Phil T. Meyer. He's an associate history professor at Kansas State University and author of the book Plain Queer, which tracks the basically untold story of male flight attendants and how that history runs in many ways parallel with the history of gay men in America. So there's this age-old question, why, why are there so many gay men, especially historically, when we think about the 70s, 80s, 90s, who work as flight attendants, right? Maybe gay men are just naturally inclined towards service work or making things pretty. <laughs> I mean, we, you can kind of think of all the stereotypes, right, about why hairdressers or why florists have an overrepresentation of, of gay men. With flight attendants, but what I found in my interviews is that there was another way more important reason. The word of mouth was circulating, I can trace it as far back as the 1950s, that in their private lives, young people who were queer were looking for work and, and they meet a steward who's got this great job where he gets to fly around the country, around the world. He makes a nice salary. He's got coworkers that don't bother him that much. He's got management that tolerates his presence. I mean, you have to be discreet, right? But no one seems to care that you're gay. The minute you hear about a job like that, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, when your employer can fire you in any sort of private sector job just for being queer, this seems like a dream, that gay men were gradually able to create places where they were accepted and appreciated on the job. One thing about flight attendants that is immediately clear is this sense of community, of, hey, we're all in this together. But there's no single defining characteristic of flight attendants right now. Who they are as people or what they need to become flight attendants. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, perhaps the most recognizable and pop culture famous flight attendants from the so-called golden age of travel were a very, very specific type of person. Presenting just some of the official requirements to be a Pan Am stewardess in the 1960s. Age 21, two and including 27 at time of employment. Height five foot two to five foot eight. Weight 110 to 135 pounds well-proportioned, marital status, single, high school graduate or equivalent, two years college preferred, must have good posture and appearance, must be of good moral character, must be willing, adaptable and prepared for hard work. It was hard work. You know, in the 60s, we would crack eggs for 129 passengers in the back galley and beat them up through the night, ready to serve scrambled eggs to passengers in the morning. The menu was developed by um, Maxime's of Paris. And so things like lobster, thermidor, seven course white tablecloths, an orchid on every table, the carts we took down the aisle and carved the roast beef in front of the passenger. 
That's Betty Regal, originally from England and a former Pan Am stewardess who flew with the iconic airline out of San Francisco in the 1960s, during its heyday. She was picked out of literally hundreds of women who wanted to fly with Pan Am during a large-scale interview. And she wrote a book about all her experiences called Up in the Air. If you're uninitiated with Pan American Airlines, it was the largest international airline flying out of the United States for most of the 20th century. And it was owned by the US government. If you need to capture the vibes of a Pan Am flight, think of Mad Men 30,000 feet above sea level. Pan Am was, uh, throughout the 20th century, the United States' only exclusively international airline, which means that the second you set your foot on a Pan Am plane, you were gonna get off in a foreign country. This is Julia Cook. Her father flew for Pan Am, and she recently wrote the book, Come Fly the World, the jet age story of the women of Pan Am. It was the first American airline to operate permanent international flights, to use radio, to serve meals in the air. That was in the 1920s, run around the world flight in the 40s. It includes a lot of real glamour. They hired the best couturiers to design all of the stewardesses' uniforms. They hired the best restaurants to design their menus for um, their flights. They brought the Beatles to the U.S. Um, the list just goes on and on. Tori Warner, born in Norway, was a stewardess for Pan Am in the 60s and 70s. For the record, she, like many women who worked in that age, specifically prefer the term stewardess. And she was just one of the women Julia interviewed for her book. I mean, thinking back, I can't believe it now. They were so liberated and everything. You know, you live the life of a millionaire without having a penny. We flew to the best place, we stayed at the best hotels, we mingled with celebrities, and then seeing the world, basically. And, you know, Julius says, come fly the world, and we did, we flew the world. And it was fascinating. And the stories they have from their days of flying are incredible. Meeting celebrities and royalty, getting an envelope of local currency on their weeks-long, all-expenses-paid layovers in places like Hong Kong or Sydney or Thailand. And, of course, dealing with the occasional rhinoceros. And here I've got the round-the-world flight, and I'm into Bangkok and laying over in Bangkok for a few days. The first officer came over and said, are you the purser of this flight? I said, I am. He said, well, I have to tell you, you've got a rhinoceros in the hold that needs bread, sugar, and milk every two hours. And I said, right, mm -hmm. yeah, I know what you people do to new stewardesses, you know. And Jackie came back up from the hold. She said, yes, there's a man down there with a beard, very scruffy looking, sitting next to the rhinoceros. I said, no, I cannot believe that. All right, so somehow it gets even more surprising. We, for some reason, have talked a lot about bodily fluids in this episode, and that's going to continue here. There was a tour group on board. There were four ladies, elderly ladies, and all of a sudden, the cockpit door opens and this man, very scruffy looking as Jackie had said, and swinging a rhinoceros slot bucket, went into the first class toilets and was swishing around and getting rid of whatever was in his bucket, you know. And so then one of the ladies looked at me and she said, is he a crew member? And I said, no, it's the man downstairs looking after the rhinoceros. And I had to write in the logbook for the next person. What do you write in there? You know, man in hold with rhinoceros needs bread, sugar and milk every two hours and the best of British luck. 
The rhino was intended for the Seattle Zoo. The captains who let the animal on in the first place were actually fined about $16,000, which is about 150 k in today's value with inflation. But Betty has some less disgusting run-ins with passengers on her flights. She met Japanese pop star Masaki Harao, who was legitimately like the Japanese Elvis. He was on a flight to Honolulu with his band, and they were, of course, chatting up the stewardesses in the galley. They were having so much fun, the U.S. Secretary of State, who was also coincidentally on the flight, decided to join in. Do you remember which Secretary of State, Kent? Dean Rusk. Oh, Dean Rusk. Yeah, I had Dean Rusk in the front, and he didn't want to miss the fun, so he came back and was standing around in the galley. So Kent is Betty's husband, by the way, but before they got married 50 years ago, she actually ended up dating Masaki Harao. And after that, he met me in Tokyo and we dated for a bit. But that was a fun experience. All the girls would scream. He came up in um, a sports car with all the gear, you know, and everything. All the girls are trying to grab him. And I'm sitting in the seat next to him and he's giving me a ride to the crew hotel. <laughs> so that was fun. And there are so many amazing stories like this. Cary Grant continuously dropping his glasses on a night flight, the mamas and the papas being surprisingly pleasant, if not slightly sedated flyers. But one thing Julia stresses in her book is Pan Am's largely forgotten role in some major moments in American history. Well, what, what surprised me the most, frankly, for, uh, from all of my research was definitely the, the level of involvement that Pan Am had in um, the wars of the mid-20th century. They picked up passengers out of really harrowing active combat zones. They dealt with uh, soldiers with PTSD in the air, soldiers that were high. Basically everything that was reported on the Vietnam War, these women had a deep and immediate insight into. So, Definite first-hand experience, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Definite first-hand experience. Tori volunteered to work on a flight called Operation Baby Lift, which was designed to rescue hundreds of orphans, mostly babies and small children, from war-torn Saigon. I wasn't that scared going in, I must say, because I had to organize so much. I mean, we were taking out 500 children. I didn't really have much time to think of what could happen when we got to Saigon, other than the fact that we had to be ready for those babies. And I know some of my crew, you know, we were seeing the, uh, the C-5A uh, Air Force plane that crashed on takeoff from Saigon with a lot of babies on board. So several of my crew called me and said, we don't want to go. This was the 5th of April of 1975, and it was the very end of the uh, Vietnam War. We were helping out uh, when things were happening around the world. You know, back in the day, I mean, when uh, back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, um, when people were traveling, uh, Americans were traveling abroad, and they had problems. They wouldn't go to the American embassy or consulate because they might not be around. They would go to the Pan Am ticket office. That's where they got assistance. We were American ambassadors to the world. This was uh, part of our, our job, really. And our behavior and our appearance abroad was you know, judged on that, and it had to be very circumspect. I had never before interviewing and meeting so many of these women met such a concentrated group of unilaterally curious and really internationally and intellectually engaged women who were so committed to being a part of the world in a really involved and laudable way. 
in these really difficult situations from, you know, war flights to um, exciting places like the Intercontinental in Beirut, where they might run into Frank Sinatra or Bridget Bardot. So, you know, they, they spent time together in these different contexts, and they really earned their bonds to one another. In the beginning of this episode, I said there were two memories of mine about flight attendants that really stick out in my mind. The first is that ill-fated crash pad trip a few years ago. The other was when I was eight years old. I was flying for the first time, and I was actually alone and really terrified. A flight attendant, an older woman, noticed this and took me up to the cockpit to meet the pilots. This was before 9-11, by the way. She gave me free ice cream and even let me hang out in the galley for the majority of the flight. I felt like a regular Masaki Harao. But in my mind, this is what flight attendants do. Flying is stressful, and flight attendants, even the grumpy ones, try to make our trips a little smoother and a lot safer. So the next time you fly, raise a toast with your complimentary water bottles, clean up after yourself, and remember, wear a mask for now, and don't drink the coffee. That's it for us. Thank you to all of our guests. And make sure to buy Come Fly the World with Me by Julia Cook, Plain Queer by Phil T. Meyer, and Up in the Air by Betty Regal. They are all excellent reads, and they make great gifts for the holiday season. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.